0: And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. It's so amazing to me that there are people at Sunridge that have just been here so long. And I know there's like a whole group of like almost charter members that they all sit over here and uh, we were, we were all parents of young kids and now we're grandparents and I don't know, it just, that's. This town, for many of us, has become our hometown. We moved from so far away so many years ago, and I'm grateful to be doing church with people that we've known each other for a really long time. That's, that's one, of the, one of the blessings of being a pastor in the same community uh, for, we won't mention, how many years anymore. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. And I'm so glad to see more and more of us showing up bravely uh, on campus uh, with all the sickness that's going around. We know that many more of you are joining us online. We're just uh, so thrilled to be a part of this, of your spiritual walk and uh, bringing you closer in your walk with Jesus in, uh, in this community and wherever God uh, sends you. Uh, in his 1992 bi- book, uh, The Kingdom of God is a Party, uh, Tony Campolo found himself speaking in Hawaii And he was from the East Coast, so he's like six hours off, which uh, some of you have traveled places and you've experienced that. So he finds himself in a 24-hour diner in the middle of the morning, like at 3 in the morning, and uh, a group of sex workers walk into the diner. And they're crude, and they're loud, and uh, because of that, he overhears one of them saying that the next day is her birthday. And so there's some sarcastic remarks uh, that take place, you know, like, what do you want from us? Are you expecting a party? Do you want a cake? And she responds back, it seems like her feelings are hurt. No, I'm not, I'm not asking for anything from you guys. It's like I just, it's my birthday. I, I've never had a birthday party. I've never had a cake. I don't want anything from you. And so they leave, and uh, Campolo walks over to the guy behind the di- diner. His name is Harry. He happens to be um, the owner the diner, and he says, hey, uh, do these uh, ladies come in every morning at this time? And he goes, yeah. And he said, the one that I heard saying that was her birthday? And he said, yeah, that's, that's Agnes. They're, they're here almost every morning. And he said, why are you asking? And he said, uh, well, I'm thinking about throwing her a birthday party tomorrow night. And uh, Harry's eyes lit up. Like, that's a great idea. So the next morning, at 2 in the morning, Campolo shows up at this diner with all kinds of birthday decorations, and they decorate the diner. And Harry's wife had even made a birthday cake. said, Happy Birthday, Agnes. And so as she and her co-workers walked in, uh, they're totally blown away. Surprise! Her, and uh, as Campolo tells it, her knees almost buckle. And so they sit her on a stool, and Harry places the cake in front of her with the candles lit, and they sing happy birthday to her. And uh, she's so overwhelmed, she can't even blow out the candles. So Harry has to blow it out for him. And so he, said, he brings the knife out. He's like, hey, let's cut the cake. Let's, you know, And you get the first slice. And Agnes says, "No, oh, could, could you wait just a minute? Could, could we just not cut it yet? And uh, she says, in fact, could I just take this cake home? he's like, yeah, yeah, everyone, sure, sure, go ahead. And so she leaves, and uh, Campolo, who's a preacher, gathers this group of sex workers together, and he prays with them. And as they leave, uh, you know, Harry, the diner owner, asks him, he's like, hey, man, you never told me you are a preacher. What kind of church do you go to? And Campolo replied, I go to a church, the kind of church that... Um, Throws birthday parties for sex workers at 3.30 in the morning. And the the Harry says, no, you don't. Uh, there's, you know, there's no church like that. If there was a church like that, I'd join it. So we're in a study of Luke. <laughs> a calendared study, if you're just joining us, where we're going to go through Luke from Christmas to Easter, from the birth of Christ, all the way to the resurrection. And you can You can already see, if you've been tracking with us, if you read Luke 7 this week and what Glenda just read, you can see that Jesus was invited to a dinner uh, by one of the most religiously upstanding persons in the first century, a Pharisee. His name is Simon, and it's a dinner of all the right kind of people. They're um, proper, they're respected, they're conservative, they're educated, they're moral, they're elite and they're influential, and Jesus is walking into this dinner kind of like uncomfortably because um, the Pharisees are starting to oppose him, but even though it's an uncertain situation, Jesus uh, welcomes the opportunity, and one of the things you see about Jesus is he's not afraid to put himself in an unwelcome or uncomfortable situation. But it's about to get even more uncomfortable. You see, in little towns and communities in the first century, it's not unusual for the word to spread that uh, a a new rabbi is in town. And of course, Jesus is in the northern part of Palestine at this time, and people are gathering and following his teaching. And at that time, the social life of the Jewish community was centered on their religion and theology and study of the Old Testament. So a re- when a rabbi comes to town, it's customary for the leaders of that town, the other rabbis, to get together. And they will, they will enter into debate and theological discussions that uh, connect to cultural times, uh, and they would do that in a synagogue. And then also sometimes they do it in a more casual setting, like at a dinner at someone's house. And it, it wasn't unusual for people who were not invited to that dinner to show up because they're interested in what they would talk about. And so it was customary for the homeowner to leave the door open and to leave windows open so that people could gather from the outside. They weren't invited to eat, but they could listen in and watch the discussion. What is unusual about this is how someone barges in and crosses the door's threshold. And that she's a woman. And that she is a sinful woman, as Luke describes her. Both of these terms, in this context, are derogatory and say something about the inappropriateness of what she had just done. And from from all accounts, it's very likely that she's encountered Jesus. She's been to some of his teachings, and that's why she's here. And it's at this point that it gets even more unconventional because Jesus' back is to her. He's either standing or he may be reclining, and he's talking or eating. And from behind, she kneels or falls on his feet and begins to weep. She's just overcome with emotion. And as her tears fall on his feet, she wipes them with her hair, and she starts kissing his feet. And then she takes expensive perfume and it pours, pours it on his feet. This is probably a sensual product that she uses in her trade. Can you imagine what this scene is like? I mean, it's shocking for us to just talk about this story, right? And it was shocking for them, too. I mean, what do you do when that's going on? You say, well, pass the wings... You know, this is really, really uncomfortable. Back in my before Christ days, I would go to these parties, and uh, there were people that got invited to the party, and then there were people that weren't invited to the party, and we called them party crashers. Anybody use that term? It's like, ooh, the party crashers are here. And a party crasher was someone who was uninvited, and it usually meant trouble when they showed up, not that there wasn't trouble already going on, but they brought an additional kind of trouble that we did not invite. This party is officially crashed. The entire dinner had to just stop, and everybody just kind of like stepped back, aghast at what had just happened. And I'm sure the people that are observing from the door are like crowding in to see what is going to happen next. And has there ever been a time in your life where like, there was, you, you said something under your breath, you know what I'm saying? Like it's in your head, you're thinking the words, while you're thinking the words, you realize that you actually said them and you said them louder than you thought you had said them. Not that that's ever happened to me. And, that, and you realize that when someone says, what did you say? I do almost the same wedding every time I do a wedding and part of my wedding's very casual. And I interact a little bit with the audience that's there. And I talk to the parents about their responsibilities. I talk about that they'll be a great resource to, the, to this couple as they marry, you know, when they're younger. And then I said, but also you got to know when to butt out and let them figure it out. And I was doing a wedding for a friend. And um, his mother was sitting on the front row. And when I said that, she said, I think she thought under her breath, where'd they get this guy? Like right in the middle of my wedding. And so this is now, I mean, you laugh, we still laugh about this. And sometimes something happens and I'll say something and I'll go, where did they get this guy? So that's what happens to this host. He's he's shocked, just like everybody else. And he's probably not thinking about how loud he's saying things. Because he responds this way. When the Pharisee, verse 39, who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, Evidently, not just to himself. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. And so these under-his-breath comments are revealing because they reveal how critical and judgmental he is all the way around. First, of the woman, that she's a sinner, he's saying that she shouldn't be here. It's inappropriate for someone like her to be at this event. But he also passes judgment on Jesus. Did you see that? If he were truly a prophet or a moral teacher, he would know who this is and he would reject her. Now, some narratives in the Bible are just that. They're just a narrative, and we're left to figure it out. They're not accompanied by any commentary or teaching. But this one happens to have Jesus' commentary in it. And he has something for both the woman and for Simon to learn. It's a life lesson for everybody. And to Simon, he says, you know, I I have something to tell you. And Simon's an eager learner, too. He says, tell me, teacher. And then Jesus tells this simple story about debt, right? You got it. Like one person owed this much money, and another person owed that much money. And there was a difference in how they responded. And I'm sure you get it, but for comparison's sake, 50 denarii is two months' wages. But 500 denarii is 20 months, almost two years. So there's a giant difference in how much is forgiven. Both are forgiven all, but there's a big difference. And then, even though... Jesus is still addressing Simon, he turns his gaze to the woman. I want you to see this. And in verse 44 he turned to the woman but he said to Simon do you see this woman? There's a lot to think about there. In that, isn't there? I came into your house. You didn't Give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. So when Jesus is talking to Simon but looking at this woman, he's reminding everybody in the room as his gaze falls on her that she's a human being. She's the person that, when seen on the street, a man like Simon would turn away. And yet Jesus' gaze is on her, not Simon, when he's helping Simon see something. And what Jesus does here is he's pointing out that it was Simon's social blunder, not the woman, as the host of this event. Because all these things are traditionally done to honor the guests that come into your home in the first century. When someone entered your home, you would have a servant wash their feet because the roads are dusty, they don't wear closed-toed shoes, and as you saw earlier, they often laid reclining as they ate, so someone's feet would be in your face. You would greet them with a kiss. And a person of Jesus' standing as a religious you know, teacher and rabbi, you would honor them by pouring oil on their head. This woman does the traditional welcome that Simon didn't do, but she does it in an extravagant manner. She washes his feet with her tears. She gives him a kiss. She kisses his feet over and over. And she pours not everyday olive oil on his head in honor, but expensive perfume on his feet. And then Jesus explains the reason for her extravagance in verse 47. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. So this woman, in her crude and socially awkward way, has shown more honor to Jesus as a guest in the home of Simon than Simon did because she sees something about herself. She sees that she needs forgiving. And not everybody in the room does. By the way, I just love the fact that she doesn't know how to be normal in this situation. The lifestyle that she leads is so different that in this context, this is so socially awkward, and yet she's not even aware of how weird she's really being. And I, you know, oftentimes people don't realize how awkward they're being. Around religious people Uh, when uh, a year ago this time my best buddy Mark Trotter the trot he died of cancer and a lot of you guys prayed for me and that and his family and his family's doing fine they're about to wrap up their first year without him but I remember I mean he and I came from Miami Gardens Florida Carroll City to be specific and um, he married this China doll, Sherry. She was raised in a super Christian home. Um, her parents were so upright. And, like, they were just very, very Christian. Not, not self-righteous, just super, super, I mean, so saintly. Like, really? And his mom, like, like, her mom would, like, vacuum the house in her, like, dress and pearls, you know, and everything. It was like beaver cleaver. And her dad was always soft-spoken. And Trot's dad was a maniac, and so Trotter was really freaking out about this family coming together for the rehearsal dinner after the after the um, you know rehearsal. This clash of like his brother who sells pot in Miami and his dad is there with his slick back hair and like an unlit cigar in his mouth. It's like he's just chewing on, and he's really loud. And he's like. Ah, da, 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 da. And Trotter is just freaking out, and I'm just cracking up. I'm enjoying this thing. His dad didn't even know. That's the point, how weird he was being. It was entertaining to all of us. (laughs) Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? So in saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus is establishing who he is. He doesn't say, I'm the Messiah, believe in me. Instead, he just does what a Messiah does, right? He forgives sins. But he also, I want you to see, he reframes who she is for her sake and everyone else in the room. Luke describes her as a sinful woman, but Jesus says, you're forgiven. You're no longer a sinner. You're a forgiven sinner. And the guests are either confused or indignant about this, how can another human being forgive sin? And when they say, who who is this that even forgives sins, it's better translated, who does he think he is? And Jesus said to the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. So here Jesus acknowledges her past life, that she indeed is a sinner who needs forgiveness and that her faith has saved her, and then he says, go in peace. That word is shalom, to go forward in peace. It doesn't just just mean like, you know, peace man or, you know, just some type of calm life. He's saying to her, shalom represented the, the kind of life that God has designed for us, that we flourish in our relationship with God and with other human beings. And he's saying, go like that. And I'm sure like Agnes in the diner, she probably wanted to linger just a little longer there with Jesus. Because this day made a huge difference in her life. She had known no peace. What, what part of her life, what kind of tragedies, what kind of experiences led her to live a life like this in the first century. And remember, like having like being this person, she has very little, if any, meaningful human relationships. The only relationship she has with men is what they what she could do for them in secret. So she experiences this schizophrenic kind of relationship with other human beings where secretly she is the focus of them. And publicly, it's like she's invisible. You see, there's nothing so awful about any of us that God's love cannot overcome. And there's nothing so great about any of us that doesn't require God's grace. In our lives so that's the Bible passage and as we've been doing if you're just joining us we're asking five questions of these narratives as we go through Luke I'll put them up there what why did Luke write this down what was important about it what do we learn about God what do we learn about people what does this tell us about the central story of Jesus and his resurrection and what do we learn about following Jesus these are the questions that we're encouraging you to ask as you read through the passages for our life groups to discuss. And of course, if you're not a part of a group, to look for opportunities to talk as a family or as a couple or with your friends and to consider these questions as we read through these texts. What do we learn about people? Number one, we learned this, that it takes incredible courage for an unreligious person to cross a religious threshold. How brave is she that she walks into this room. This is not her space. This is not a place of comfort for her. What does she expect is going to happen? How much courage does it take her? How determined is she to be with Jesus and express something to Him in order to put herself... In this position, it kind of makes you wonder are her tears uh, the result of being forgiven, or part, partly because she's just so humiliated to have stepped into this space? And you know what? I like, I, I know I've told you guys I used to be a fireman, I won't make the joke, but um, I haven't always been a preacher. But one thing I've known is that, like, it's hard for people who don't go to church to walk into a church, just that simple thing. It's really hard. And I I hear from people, it's like, well, I would come to church, but I don't feel worthy. I mean, the, the walls will cave in on me. I'm not worthy. Who is? And churches and religious gatherings can be very much like this gathering. The door is open, for sure. But will you really be welcome when you walk Through or across that threshold. That's what people constantly ask. And of course, I'm not talking about just this building, I'm talking about our lives. How do we respond when someone that makes us uncomfortable for whatever reason enters into our space? And then the other question or like thought is if you're not religious, Don't let your fears keep you from stepping toward God. Whatever's happened in your past, whatever shame you might feel, whatever's part of your present or whatever your doubts and questions are about God, Jesus welcomes that. You know, I'm reminded that we've already, these are two stories we've already seen now of a guy named Simon. They're two different people. But remember Simon Peter, when he recognized he was in the presence of Jesus, he said, go away, I'm a sinful man. And this Simon, a Pharisee, said she should go away. Isn't that interesting? The truth is, whether I'm a sinful person or the most moral, upright person in the room, you're right where you're supposed to be in God's presence. Next, what do we learn about God? We learned this that God is good at forgiving, which is good news because people are good at sinning, right? And now I realize that that's not sin, sinning, sinners. It's not part of our vocabulary anymore. And even for a lot of religious people, even Christian people, the idea of sin seems to be an antiquated idea, and it can just be uh, so wrongly viewed. I mean, we kind of go back and forth about this. Like, you know, for me, you know, I picture, uh, uh, you know, like when I hear the word sinner, I picture like, like a slicked back hair guy with a bony finger pointing it at me, calling me a sinner. Or uh, I have this mental picture of me pointing my finger out at someone else and talking about those bad people. Either way, what does the Bible mean by sin? You see, there are thoughts and behaviors or beliefs that are healthy and enable uh, human flourishing, and then there are their opposites. And that's what the Bible describes as sin. Sin can look like awful things that people recognize as destructive to human beings, like the taking of life or stealing. But sin can also masquerade as something benign or even good. In fact, it almost always does. And I love this quote. I've used it before from Augustine, St. Augustine. Sin is disordered love disordered love. And I love what Tim Keller says on this note. He says that sin is building your identity or your self-worth and happiness on anything other than God. So then that's idolatry, and idolatry is not a separate sin. It's the root of all sins. So then the first commandment, you shall have uh, no other gods before you, it ends up being violated in every sin we ever commit. You're sinning when you sleep or shack up with your boyfriend or girlfriend, but that really begins with looking to your romance to save you. You sin when you cheat on your taxes, but you cheat on your taxes because money and possessions are more important to you than your integrity and your relationship with God. And we sin when we lie to face, um, to save face, or to avoid consequences. But the root of that lie is that human approval is more important and human reputation is more important to us than our relationship with God. And so Simon here, he's righteous morally, yet as a Pharisee, his moral goodness has become an idol to him so that what people think of him And maintaining the respect of his peers leads him to violate the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart and your neighbor. And it's that idolatrous perspective that Simon has as a good man, as a righteous man, and that influence on his life that causes him to see this scene so differently from Jesus he thinks that Jesus should have turned away from this woman as someone not being worthy, and yet Jesus welcomes her presence. Simon thinks that having this woman touch Jesus makes Jesus unclean, but Jesus welcomes her unholy worship. And Simon thinks, well, maybe... At first he thinks that Jesus might be the promised prophet, Until he accepts this woman, yet Jesus actually proves he's the Son of God by his acceptance of her. So I want you to see something here. The woman has the right theology. See, Simon thought because she's a sinner, she should stay away from Jesus and Jesus should avoid her. But she thought, I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I need to be with Jesus. Jesus is not saying sin and be proud. He's pointing out what saves her and what saves us. It's not her life. It's not her righteousness. It's not her money. It's not her standing. It's not her reputation. It's not the church that she belongs to. It's not even her doctrinal positions. It's her faith in Christ. She is a sinner. But that that fact does not drive her away from him. It drives her to Jesus. See, the problem with Phariseeism is that it it makes it impossible for a sinner to come to Jesus because it falsely reflects that there will be no mercy if they do. And it's a rare person that steps up to confess in that environment. Sin, our recognition of sin, leads us toward Jesus, our brokenness should draw us to him. And the highest form of worship is not to come into Jesus' presence with uh, being uh, totally perfect and in great condition and like having our lives all together, but instead casting ourselves upon his mercy. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus It teaches us how to go forward. You see that. He says, go forward. Go in peace from this point of confession, this point, the the thousand little points in the day where we recognize that we're broken. Go from there in peace. The gospel teaches us to keep going forward as broken as we are, to not stay static. Last, what do we learn about following Jesus? We learn this, that we follow Jesus as part of the new community. The new community. You know, Jesus preaches all the time against sin, but he never separates himself from sinners. And the line in Christian community is not between sinner and righteous. Instead, the grace of God creates a new community of the forgiven. In Galatians 3, verse 26 and following, the Apostle Paul says this So in Christ Jesus, you were all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. The word Gentile here is to say sinner. There's neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then, you are Abraham, Jewish patriarch, you are, Abra- you are of Abraham's seed, and you are heirs according to the same promise. This gives us a paradigm for the church and the world and ourselves. And others. See, we know two things about ourselves. Number one, we know that we can, in a desire to be pure, separate ourselves from the undesirables who most need us to be in contact with them. And we also know that we can rationalize any sin in our life so that we can always rearrange our loves in the order that we want them to be. When I read this story, I wonder, what was the next day like? What was it like for this woman? And what about Simon and his guests? How much did they change by, by that very next day? I think it would have been incredibly difficult for either one of them to change dramatically because these patterns of their lives are so set. For the woman to totally reject her life, her lifestyle, would bring up doubts about her ability to survive because she's in this business because it's the only way she can feed herself and possibly her children. Which is one explanation why Jesus' entourage grows as people step out of their sinful lives and they follow him, they have no place to go. And we know that there are women funding the ministry of Jesus. So as this crowd gathers, you know, at one time, 5,000 people, they need to be fed. So just stepping out of that lifestyle means she she has no means of financial support. And then you kind of wonder, did Simon invite her to the next dinner party? Because for him to engage this woman would mean a loss of standing, the the respect of his peers, and it would begin all the whispers about how Simon has gone right rudder and lost his mind. Did they truly become part of this new community that Paul talks about? in his letter to the Galatians. Although the woman is accepted by Jesus, we don't know how much she's accepted by Simon and his friends. And we don't know that this woman wouldn't have just felt so out of place over time and feel so weird that she might just go back because it's just too hard. It had to be weird and so difficult and there had to be a lot of conscious practicing of the fruits of the Spirit so that they could work out these differences. You know, one way we know that we are becoming part of the new community is the discomfort that we feel, not the comfort. Oh, man, I've, I love to be with saints I love. You know. But truly, truly, the measure of our community is the discomfort that we feel. Because isn't it true, like Simon, he's always going to be a little snooty, isn't he? And the woman will probably always be a little rough around the edges. And as we kind of think about that, some of us, would we gravitate toward different kinds of company that way, Right? Aren't we all on a timeline of transformation? Aren't we all kind of like, you know, we're not right where we are in the dot right now. We're we're not where we're going to be five years from now, tomorrow, ten years from now. Are you you different than you were ten years ago? Hopefully. None of us are like, we, we just never arrive. And that's why I say the church needs the party crashers. And you know what? The party crashers, they need the church. it be a warm and welcoming place. And for wherever you think you are in that story, it will always be easier to simply say, I'm out, I don't belong, or no, they don't belong. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as they do, in order for... The new community to form, Uh, the church has to commit to a theology of discomfort. I'm not saying the church needs to be friendly or the church needs to be a welcoming place. What I'm saying is for God to bring his church together in the way he intended, we have to embrace the fundamental theology of the new community. And rather than forming a theology that leads us to become more and more comfortable with where we are and who we are with, the new community forms as we're with people and in community with people that make us uncomfortable. So I should be really good for your spiritual growth right now. It means we grow alongside people who have addictions, who drink too much, some that are just total teetoler, teetotalers. We grow alongside people who have perfect families and perfect marriages, and people who have been divorced multiple times and their families are wreck, and they would be embarrassed if their kids came to church. We grow alongside people who think way too highly of themselves and people that walk in here in shame. We grow alongside people who are liberal and people who are conservative. We grow alongside people who have different views on marriage, even gender, even vaccines and masks. (laughs) I know, I left preaching and went to meddling there. (laughs) We grow alongside people who are like basically theologians, that and you haven't learned anything coming to church in years because you already know it, which is saying a lot. <laughs> and we have people that we grow alongside that they couldn't even name three disciples right now. We grow alongside people who can't remember a time where they weren't going to church. They have just always believed in God and people who are only thinking about faith right now. And the only way we do that is we stand together at the foot of the cross. And we recognize, as we look around, that there are people more broken than us in different ways, but we are broken as well. And that level ground at the cross is what allows us to be together. And when a church, a people, when, when they become that, when they become people who li- to embrace this fundamental theology of being uncomfortable with each other at the foot of the cross, that's, that's the only time, or that is the time, where God can allow party crashers to become the reason for the party in the first place and in the future, even become one of the party makers for others. That is what this story is about. Will you stand and worship in response to that? Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.